I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger. And this is KGNU, the How on Earth show, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 18th, 2014. Coming up, journalist Adam Rogers shares tales of fungus, sugar, hangovers, and other key ingredients of alcohol and our relationship to it from his book, Proof, The Science of Booze. And How on Earth's Joel Parker joins us to talk about the Rosetta mission and its road trip through the solar system to meet and hitch a ride with a comet. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The powers of the mind have been validated once more by a bioengineering study at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Researchers have discovered a way to switch gene function on and off with the power of thought. The study used an electroencephalogram, or EEG, headset, which measures electrical activity in the brain. The headset transmits the wave pattern via Bluetooth to an implant in a mouse. The implant contains an LED which switches on depending on the type of brainwave or thought. The near-infrared light that is emitted then triggers a chemical chain reaction in the cell, which switches on genes that produce a certain protein. For this study, the isolated protein was a common type of human glycoprotein known as SEAP. Three types of brainwaves were used, those gleaned from concentrators, meditators, and a group who used biofeedback to see their own waves. The results, published last week in the journal Nature Communications, showed that concentrators produced average amounts of the glycoprotein as compared to the control. Meditators produce high levels, and biofeedback allowed for the participants to actively switch on or off the level of production. This is obviously just the beginning of creating mind-controlling technology, but one might wonder if nature has been taking advantage of this all along. Speaking of nature, most people have probably seen YouTube videos of male lions killing cubs. If you haven't and don't like gratuitous violence, don't watch them. For years, scientists poo-pooed the idea that adults would kill infants of their own species. But in the 1970s, Sarah Hurdy observed male monkeys in India invade a troop, drive off the patriarch, and attack infants. She hypothesized that infanticide improves a male's chances of reproducing. In a study published last week in the journal Science, biologists at the University of Cambridge looked at infanticide in all mammals. They found data on 260 species, and in 119 of them, more than 45%, males killed unrelated infants. Why do males commit this seemingly horrific act? Well, when females live in groups with one dominant male, only a few males get to mate, and a lot of other males are childless. Natural selection will favor males that can take over groups of females. But these males are pressed for time. Eventually, another male will replace them. Meanwhile, females are non-receptive while nursing. Killing the young would free up females for reproduction, which would lead to more offspring for the males. Shift work is a great way to make a business more productive by keeping the shop running 24 hours a day. What's more, some jobs simply need to happen day and night, such as staffing a hospital, emergency rooms, or police patrols. Unfortunately, shift work increases the risk for a number of negative health outcomes, including obesity. Now, a study by CU Boulder's Kenneth Wright offers new clues about why shift work can lead to extra weight. 
Wright's team shows that people who work and eat at night don't burn as many calories as people who eat during the day, even if the meal and its total number of calories are exactly the same for the night meal shift worker and the daytime meal regular worker. Up next, how on earth Shelley Schlender speaks via Skype with Kenneth Wright. Wright, by the way, says that while people working and eating at night might not burn as many calories as daytime workers, they tend to eat just as many calories as people who work and eat during the day, even though the night shift workers say that they feel less hungry. Now, here's Shelley. Boy, that surprises me because when I don't sleep well, and if I eat at night, I'm tired and I eat a lot more, not because I'm hungry, but because I'm tired. And that may be one of the reasons why people who do shift work are eating at that time, because they do need the energy to stay awake. But another important aspect which needs to be followed up on is what are people choosing to eat? We know that their food choices aren't necessarily as healthy as day workers because the food that's available may not be as healthy. Or they may be tired and just looking for food that stimulates them and keeps them awake. This is true. We may be eating foods that make us happy and uh, more comfort foods. You mentioned that people who sleep during the day burn more fat. This was across the 24 hours. And indeed, when people were on a shift work schedule, they were burning more fat. But we think that this is a response to what happens typically in shift workers when they have their first night shift. Typically, they wake up in the morning from their days off. They take a nap during the day and then they're awake all night. And so in that 24 hours, they're awake much longer than normal. And we think that this sleep deprivation is the reason why subsequently they are burning more fat because that sleep deprivation requires them to use more energy. So they don't get enough sleep. Correct. Shift workers, even if we have the optimal sleep environment, it's very difficult to sleep during the daytime when they're transitioning from being off on days to working that first night shift. In that 24 hours, they get much less sleep than typical. How do you see exercise and diet helping to rebalance the circadian rhythms and the hormones so that people kind of naturally eat the right amount and get more sleep, even if they're shift workers? First, we have to recognize that shift work really goes against our fundamental biology. We Humans aren't designed to be awake at night. We know that a healthy diet and a healthy amount of physical activity is important for our health as well as our well-being. What we don't know is how much physical activity is necessary to maintain the health of people who do shift work. It may be more than the typical recommendation we give to day workers. And it's likely that eating a healthy diet is even more important for shift workers than it is for day workers. At this point, would you recommend how many hours of sleep during a 24-hour period for a shift worker? And how much would you suggest for them to exercise? Well, in terms of the amount of sleep for a shift worker, the goal would be to try to increase the amount of sleep in that 24 hours. And typically what happens in a shift worker who's working overnight is they'll go home and they'll sleep for five to six hours because that's all the amount of sleep that they can get because it's daytime and our clock is not prepared for us to be sleeping. So what we recommend is in addition to that five to six hours that you get there, take a several hour nap in the afternoon to increase the total amount of sleep in that 24 hours to achieve the seven to eight hours that we would recommend for a normal day worker. And then in terms of the amount of physical activity, the minimum that we give for day workers is, you know, half an hour of physical activity a day, five days a week. And it's likely that for shift workers, it may, it may be more. 
Kenneth's right new Kenneth Wright's new study about shift workers and calorie burning has just been published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. He's been speaking with How on Earth Shelley Slender. Well, my baby, she's gone, gone every night. Ain't seen the girl since the night before last. Gonna get drunk and get her off of my mind. The one woman, the one scotch, the one beer. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. If you haven't poured that second cup of joe yet, what comes up next might inspire you to reach for some whiskey and make it an Irish coffee. Joining us via telephone from California is Adam Rogers. He's Articles Editor at Wired Magazine and author of the recently published book called Proof, the Science of Booze. Adam traveled to many distilleries and bars to report on the many processes involved in making booze, tasting it, and enjoying, or suffering, the effects of booze. We still have a few copies of Proof from our fall pledge drive recently. If you call in before 10 o'clock and pledge at least $60, the book is yours. Call 303-449-4885. And meanwhile, Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, So I just have to say, first of all, you just... It, it, you just recommended that people have an Irish coffee before going to work. And you suggested that I did all the reporting for my book about the sites of booze at distilleries and bars. What are you doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have all these This is, I, I can just imagine the Boston traffic if everyone had an Irish, instead of the basic number of people who I assume have started their day with Actually, Irish Adam's calling in from jail. I forgot to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just jump right in and say, um, why did you write a book about the science of booze? Oh, I mean, I, I have I have a bunch of of, um, of just those stories about the, the secret origin of the book, but the but the real the secret reason I'll tell you the secret reason, which is that <laughs> I, I I was doing I was following Mary Poppins' advice. This is the the classic spoonful of sugar. <laughs> um, there is some really interesting science behind how people make booze, how people consume and feel the effects of booze, um, and and what scientists. Uh, can learn when they use booze as a as a as a, a model organism in their lab, if you will, as a proxy for for other kinds of science. And so, what I wanted to do was take a subject that people were, um, let's say, that almost everyone has at least a passing familiarity with, um, and some people have more of a familiarity than others. Yeah, right. Uh, and and use that as a vehicle, um, and make try to make the case that that booze is a kind of um, is a kind of hologram for the entire human experience of 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 our of our connection with nature, our connection with the world, our connection with the microorganisms that we share the planet with, our connection with the technology that we ourselves build, that we create from, from these raw materials with our, our big wrinkly brains and our opposable thumbs, that you can use um, booze to tell the story of all of that. And I want to return to Mary Poppins in a bit, but first, um, big picture, you say early on in the book that booze is civilization in a glass. That's big. <laughs> Say more yeah, about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, there's some, um, some intentional hyperbole there, but, but what I'm, I'm trying to make two cases by saying that. One of them is, that, is, is, a, is, a, is a pretty straightforward one, which is that um, archaeologists and ethnologists make this, um, have this argument, they call it bread versus, uh, bread versus beer, and the, the argument is over whether human beings first started to plant grain at the beginning of our of civilization, literally, of when we started to become civilized because they wanted to make bread or because they wanted to make beer. You can imagine I come down on the beer side of the <laughs> argument. But the, but the, the notion being that, that the, the desire to, to, to make and perfect this stuff, 
that um, this liquid that would make you feel different and that added value to the to the plants around us um, was a driving force behind our our transition from being um, simple Homo sapiens to being people. So does that suggest that that the ability to feel different with some chemical is intrinsic to the dawn of civilization? Well, I, I don't know, and you know, I'm suspicious of those kind of, of, of the, uh, the evolutionary just so arguments. But I, but I will say that that you can you could wrap a bunch of arguments like that together and make a more convincing case to me. Which is so, for example, yes, people like to chase an altered state of consciousness, right? But making um, water into beer also makes the water safer. So if you don't have access to a, a, a reliable and satisf- satisfactorily clean source of water, if you add some alcohol to it, it makes it safer to drink. So that becomes a motive that I can get behind much more than just wanting to get plowed on a Friday night. <laughs> right. um, and, and if you're selling your crop, if you, if you have an economy, if you're developing an economy, and you have, a, you have a bunch of acres of crop that you've just grown, it's a lot easier to turn all of that into a couple of barrels of liquid and get it down the mountain and into town to sell than it is to harvest all that stuff and carry it all. And you can actually charge more for it than you can just charge for the grain because you've done something to it. You've added some value. So there's an economic argument. Yeah, there too. money speaks... Well, once you start to stack all those arguments on top of each other, you begin to see a, uh, a, a really interesting role for, for booze in the development of the civilization. Oh, so um, also you speak a lot about Japan and certain sort of inventors and those behind sake in Japan, and I certainly share your affinity for Japan, having lived there for a bunch of years and, and coming to love sake. And mm-hmm. um, you talk about this particular t- uh, species of fungus called koji which you say is at the heart of Japanese cuisine, and apparently sake, and, and more than sake, and more than just in Japan, right? Yeah, koji, is a, koji may well be my favorite microorganism. <laughs> See, that's when you, when you write these kind of books, you get to have favorite microorganisms, I guess. Um, so it, most people know that you use yeast to ferment sugar into ethanol, the kind of alcohol we drink, and, and that's what yeast does. It takes simple sugars, makes them into booze. But um, if you're making, uh, if you're trying to make booze out of, out of any kind of grain, really, the, the, the sugar in grain is locked up as starch, the complex sugar, polysaccharide. So you have to break that into simple sugar for the yeast to eat somehow. In the West, we tend to use a process called malting, which is when you, um, you sort of let the grain seeds germinate a little bit, and they start to make the enzymes that break starch into sugar. We have those enzymes in our saliva, too. Human beings make those as well. So we can digest starch. Yeast can't. But in Japan, in the, in, in the East, because it's true in China and Korea, too, they have a whole different system. They use this microorganism called koji. It's an aspergillus species, aspergillus arising. And usually the aspergillus species of fungus are, are, are real jerks. They're <laughs> toxic, and they cause cancer, and they're, they're, they're super dangerous, um, but not arising. What, what koji does, all those genes are, are present, but they're turned off. It's been domesticated to instead make proteases and amylases. It breaks down starches into sugars and breaks down proteins into amino acids. So it's at the heart of miso and soy sauce and rice wine vinegar. Which many of us love. Yeah, and then, a lot um, of delicious stuff. <laughs> so we've got time for, unfortunately, just about one more. Um, what were some of the bigger surprises or discoveries for you? You already apparently knew a lot and cared a lot about alcohol. <laughs> Stop tarring my character. With <laughs> Honestly, I went out and reported it. It wasn't all on the phone from a bar. Um, I understand. Uh, no, I, I, I think actually the, the thing that shocked me the most was, was the, um, the fact that we were talking about altered states of consciousness a little bit, that, that, that alcohol is the only, um, the only re- recreational chemical, because there are a lot of them that people use, the only one of those recreational chemicals that um, scientists really don't understand the, the mode of action for. 
um, they can tell you how an opiate works or how marijuana works. But when you, when you really ask, when you push on a neuroscientist just a little bit for an explanation of how alcohol affects the brain, they start to say, I don't know. They start to, to wobble a little bit. And that's fascinating to me because that means it's on the outer edge of science. That's where the action is. Oh, I would have thought that there was most known about that. I know. It's super weird, right? Super weird. Uh, there have been theories. Uh, there, were, there have been hypotheses, many of them disproved. Some people for a long time thought that ethanol was a, a kind of general actor because, it, um, because ethanol is a small molecule and it's fat-soluble, so it penetrates um, cell membranes. It goes right through the walls of cells, including neurons in the brain. So people thought, oh, well, it's not actually having an effect on, on receptors on the, on the outside of neurons in the brain, which is how most chemicals work, right? That's how neurotransmitters work in our own brains, too. Um, and people thought, well, ethanol bypasses that. It just goes in and affects the, the cell membrane somehow completely. But that seems to not be the case. It does seem to have... Um, an effect probably on, on receptors related to how benzodiazepines work, drugs like Valium, mm-hmm. um, but, but just related receptors, not the exact same ones. And it, it's, still, uh, it's still in play. It's still a question that researchers are trying to answer. Fascinating. Well, so much more to uh, ask and discover. That was Adam Rogers, science journalist and author of the recently published book called Proof, the Science of Booze. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Adam. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to listeners out there, to get a copy of the book, call in now or before 10 a.m. and pledge at least $60 to your favorite community radio station, KGNU. Call You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. Today we're joined by our own Joel Parker, who happens to be a director at the Southwest Research Institute and a collaborating partner on the Rosetta mission, which has just succeeded in being the first to land a craft on a comet flying through our solar system. Welcome, Joel. Thank you, Kendra. It's good to be on the show. So Rosetta left Earth in March of 2004, is that right? And has traveled about 3 billion miles to rendezvous with this moving target. Mm -hmm. And nothing's, no fuel or launcher is strong enough to shoot something that far. So as I understand, the flight dynamics engineers charted a path to use gravity to slingshot this thing out into space. Tell, Tell us a little bit more about the trajectory that this craft had to take to get to its target. So that's that's right, Kendra. The uh, <clears throat> the orbit of the comet is very elliptical. This is not uncommon for comets. It comes in as close as between Earth and Mars, but goes out as far as Jupiter in this elliptical orbit. And to be able to get <clears throat> the Rosetta spacecraft into a matching orbit is a little tricky. That's why it took 10 years. We had three flybys of the Earth mm. and one flyby of Mars to basically use a gravitational slingshot to shape the orbit of the Rosetta spacecraft, saving a lot of fuel to get it to match the orbit of the comet. So that's why we've been out there for so long. And it's just been flying around and around. So Rosetta has finally reached its target. And once it gets there, we have another character who emerges onto the scene, and that's Phila. <laughs> Tell me how to pronounce that, and, and what's his job? So I, I, I pronounce it phile. A lot of people on the mission do. I think it's uh, uh, pronounced differently. It's, it's an island in the uh, Nile 
River. Ah. And Rosetta has, you know, a lot of Egyptian theme names to it. It's the island where an obelisk was found that helped with the final uh, keys for the translation of the Rosetta Stone and things like that. So uh, Philae is the lander, a spacecraft in and of itself um, that was flying along with Rosetta. Rosetta has 11 instrument packages on it. Philae has 10 instrument packages on it. So uh, this is, the mission's incredible. It's a huge uh, laboratory that we've sent to the comet. Amazing. And now I keep hearing about this infamous bounce that occurred. What, what is that? Was the machine wearing moon shoes? Is it there's a springy surface, uh, or is it something to do with gravity that's happening on this thing? Um, well, it definitely has to do with gravity, it has to do with a number of things. Uh, the lander did, in fact, bounce. Um, there were uh, certain mechanisms on the fillet lander that were meant to hold it down onto the surface when it first landed. It was moving at about one meter per second when it landed, which is a a, a brisk walk. Uh, and when it hit the surface, it was supposed to have a reverse thruster to hold it down on the surface, some harpoons and uh, foot drills. Uh, the There was a problem with the reverse thruster uh, tanks and a valve for that. Uh, but for some reason, also, the harpoons didn't work. And I don't think the details have been figured out yet. So there wasn't anything to hold it down on the surface, so it bounced. And because the gravity is so low, it's, you know, 50,000, 60,000 times less than the Earth. A bounce can go very high. It went up to a kilometer on the bounce. And that sounds like a lot, but as someone uh, mentioned to me, if you have a super ball and you drop it, you know, it bounces up about half the height. Well, Philae was dropped from... 23 kilometers, and it only bounced one kilometer. So that's that's not too bad. So now that they've effectively hitched a ride atop this comet, what's next? Sit back and enjoy the scenery? There's no sitting back, let me tell you. But we are enjoying the scenery. Um, so Philae, the Philae lander did what it could do on the first uh, battery power. Uh, a lot of data were returned from it, and the lander team's going to be sifting through that, and we're going to be hearing a lot more over the next few weeks and months about what it found. The Rosetta Orbiter will continue to fly with the comet for over a year, uh, another year and a half at least, and it's going to watch as the comet turns on and gets more active and spews gas and dust, and we're going to learn a lot about the life of a comet and what it's made of. Excellent. That's Joel Parker, director of the South at a director at the Southwest Research Institute and part of the Rosetta Mission Science Team. For more info on the Rosetta Mission, check out links on our blog howonearthradio.org later today. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter are me, Kendra Kruger, and Jane Palmer. And thanks to Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlender for their headline contributions. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from John Lee Hooker and Aphex Twin. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. 
questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran.